Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word today. Join me in the book of 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6, we're making our way through this wonderful Old Testament book today. Uh, or not today, but a series that will continue today. And uh, this morning we're going to look at a message entitled, Where on Earth is God? Where on Earth is God? Uh, it is, uh, the passage we're going to read is set in the context of King Solomon building the temple. We're not going to look at all of those details surrounding the temple construction. I asked you when we started this series a few weeks ago to go home and read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. I hope you've been able to do that um, and that you're familiar with chapter 5 and 6. Uh, so we're not going to look at all of the details of the construction process, but I do want to point out just a few aspects that's kind of taken from the middle of this narrative that helps us understand that as Solomon moves through this construction process, he gives us some idea as to where on earth God is. That's what we're going to look at today. 1 Kings chapter 6. Follow with me in verse number 11. 1 Kings 6, verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all of my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with you which I spake to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Now go down to verse 37. In the fourth year, this is the fourth year of King Solomon's reign, in the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month Ziph. And in the eleventh year, in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof, and according to all the fashion of it, so he was seven years in building, a seven-year building program. So may God add his blessings today as we look at where on earth is God. Several years ago, I had a wonderful opportunity and privilege to visit the world's largest religious monument. I was on a, a mission trip to Cambodia and Vietnam and Taiwan and was able to go to a town in Cambodia called Siem Reap. And Siem Reap, there is a Hindu temple there called Angkor Wat. Uh, it actually uh, was built in roughly the 12th century, but over time it kind of got swallowed up by the jungle. Now, I'm not talking about just a little small building. It is the largest in the world. It has... Uh, a footprint that covers over 500 acres. It has a thousand different buildings attached to it. They say that it is actually larger than New York City. When you go home today, you can Google Anchor Wad. You can see a picture of it there in the background behind me this morning. But uh, it was grown over by the jungle and was lost for a number of years and then actually rediscovered, and now it is a Buddhist temple. But originally when it was built, it was built in, um, in honor of the Hindu god Vishnu. And it was said that the great deities of the Hindu faith, uh, Vishnu, which is the, uh, the uh, preserver, uh, Brahma, the god who was the creator in Hindu culture, and then also Shiva, which is the destroy destroyer, that those gods reside on this mountain there in Simreep. But when Simreep, or Angkor Wat, was constructed... It was not constructed necessarily as a place of worship where the worshipers would come and uh, have worship 
uh, experiences, although it is somewhat that today. Uh, when we were there, you could see worshipers going in and out of different rooms. They were burning incense. They were, they were kneeling with their, the, the bottoms of their feet facing away from the particular deity they were bowing before uh, to make sure they were doing it out of respect and um, a number of different things, but it was not necessarily a place of worship. What this was was really more of a shrine. It was a shrine to the gods of the Hindu religion. Now, the Hindus have some, get this now, church, some 30 million Hindu gods. Can you imagine that? Some 30 million Hindu gods. When we were in Trinidad, Tobago a few years on a mission trip, we were able to visit the largest, um, uh, one of the largest uh, Hindu places or, or colonies, I guess for lack of a better word, that's outside of India. And uh, able to go see, it's the second tallest monkey god. If my memory serves me, it's about 185 feet tall, something to that effect. But anyway, I say all that to say that inside the shrine here at Angkor Wat, what you really have is you have a, a human shrine made with human man, man's hands that contain human gods with a little g, that human people have created and come by and deify and worship these human gods that were made with hands that have absolutely no power whatsoever. In fact, the psalmist speaks of such gods in Psalm 115. The Bible says, Our God is in heaven. He has done whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths and they do not speak. They have eyes and they do not see. They have hands but they do not handle and feet they do not walk. What the psalmist is saying is all other man-made gods and man-made deities and man-made idols are little more or nothing more, I should say, than inanimate objects, again, crafted by the hand of man that has absolutely no power whatsoever. When we transition from that to thinking about King Solomon building his temple, I want you to know the difference could not be more pronounced. Solomon was not building a shrine for a god that had been crafted by the hands of man. Solomon was not building some sort of a monument. When he was building the temple of God, he was not building some sort of a museum or a memorial place where the statue of a dead god could be enshrined and that people could come by from generation after generation and pay their respects to this dead god. When King Solomon was building the temple, I want you to know he was building a place where the eternal presence of God would come and reside with mankind. It would not be a place, now listen carefully, the temple would not be a place where God would live because you cannot create a structure, an edifice, a place large enough for the king of glory. Amen, church? Jesus said, or God said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. How in the world could you construct a temple large enough to house the majesty of God? But when Solomon built the temple, it was not a home for God. It was not a place where God would live and God would continually reside. It was a place where the presence of God would come and would meet with mankind. Let me say that again. Oh, it's very important that we understand that. It was not a home for God. It was a place where God would come and meet with mankind. So as we begin to unfold what Solomon does as he, as he builds this temple, he is saying to us, I'm going to show you the place on earth where God is. 
Probably not good to end with a preposition. I'll show you a place on earth um, uh, where God comes to, to visit mankind or God comes to um, uh, connect with mankind. So what we're going to do today for the next little while, we're going to answer this question, where on earth is God? And we're going to look at that through this portion of King Solomon's building program. Now let me give you a little background. Because the last time we were together, you know, we didn't look at chapters five and, 4, 5, and 6. We looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3. And you know all the way up until that point, um, God had spoken to Solomon in a dream and said, Solomon, whatever you want, ask me, I'll give it to you. Solomon asked God for wisdom. God gave him great wisdom, a myriad of other things that God gave him, such as wealth, uh, such as fame and popularity, because Solomon, in his selfless request, said, God, give me wisdom that I might be able to lead your great people. As you move to chapter 6 of 1 Kings, here's what you find. We didn't read the verses, but you can go back and read them for yourselves. It has now been roughly 500 years since the Hebrews uh, left Egyptian bondage. Roughly 500 years since Moses led the Exodus, parted the Red Sea, and the Hebrews moved through the Sinai Peninsula on their way to the Promised Land under the leadership of Moses. The Jordan River is eventually parted, and under the leadership of Joshua after Moses' death, the Hebrews go into Canaan land, and they begin the conquest of Canaan land, and all of the different tribes of Israel are divided up by families. The 12 tribes of Israel, they all get a portion of property with the exception of the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe, and their role, their responsibility was to take down the tabernacle, to move it from place to place, erect the tabernacle, which would be their visible place of worship during that temporary time. This went on for some 500 years or so. So after the Hebrews settled in Canaan land, they, the Bible says that under the time of the judges, there was no king that ruled the Hebrews. So every man did that which was right in his own eyes, meaning that there was no standard of truth. Your truth is your truth, and my truth was my truth. Your reality is your reality, my reality is my reality. Kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? That every man did that which was right in their own eyes, that the lines of right and wrong have been erased and everything is just gray. And you do what you want to do and I'll do what I want to do. At the end of the day, we all can sit around the campfire and hold hands and we sing kumbaya, right? That there's no real truth. Everything is just simply relative. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, following that season in Judges, the Hebrews selected their first king, King Saul. Saul reigned for some 40 years, and he transitioned Israel from a theocracy where God is in control to a monarchy where now it is a sovereign king, King Saul, who is in control. He serves for 40 years, passes it off to King David. Uh, Saul ends up being a disaster. King David becomes king. He serves for 40 years. And then upon David's death, the crown is taken from David and placed on the head of his son, King Solomon. And Solomon becomes, becomes a king that reigns in such opulence and such prestige that all other kingdoms would pale in comparison. When Solomon reigned, he enjoyed 40 years of peace. There were no enemies to conquer, no external enemies, no internal enemies. He had incredible wealth. Do you know the Bible says that in Solomon's kingdom that silver was as common as stones? 
Now listen, those of you, when we were in Israel a few years ago, you know there's rocks everywhere, right? I mean, everywhere you go, there's rocks. Can you imagine silver being as common as stones and that gold flowed like water and that when, uh, when uh, the queen of Sheba came and saw Solomon's kingdom for the first time, she says, I've heard about it all of my life, but now that I see it for myself, not even the half has been told. So King Solomon reigned in absolute power and prestige and uh, absolute peace. His wisdom and his wealth became legendary. After he had reigned on the throne roughly four years, the Bible tells us that he was engaged now in this building program. King David, his dad, drew up the plans for it, organized some of the materials, but it would be up to Solomon to make it a reality. And during his fourth year, he with laser focus, turns his attention to building a place on the earth where he could say, this is where God will meet with mankind. It would be the Jewish temple, not a shrine for a dead God. Not a place where, where a God made with the, man, the hands of man would be enshrined for folk to come and see and pay respects. This would be a place where the living presence of the Shekinah glory of God would come down and meet with mankind. Now, the location of this temple would be on the same hill where Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice years earlier, or he had intended to do that. It was the same section of, of land where years later the Lord Jesus would come and die on the cross of Calvary on that same spot where Solomon was now going to build this temple. So chapters 5 and 6 record the construction process. In fact, I read it and I think, this must have been chaos. In chapter 5, God says that Solomon fashions a deal with a man named Hiram to buy cedar lumber from him. And he organizes a group. Now get this, church. I'm not making this up. This is in the text. You can read it for yourself. Solomon organizes some 30,000 men who will go in waves to Lebanon, 10,000 at a time, to cut timber and to gather the timber and the cedar that was necessary to help build this temple. Not only did he have 30,000 woodcutters, the Scripture says he had 70,000 transporters that he had, now get this, 80,000 stonecutters, over 3,300 foremen. And you would think that it would be mass chaos, but I want you to know it was an absolutely beautifully orchestrated building project of which Solomon would be the overseer, and it would be the crowning achievement of King Solomon's reign. Listen to what he says in 2 Chronicles 2. Solomon said, the temple that I'm going to build will be great. Because our God is greater than all other gods. And if you want to see how organized this was, go to uh, verse number 7 of chapter 6. Back up to verse 7 and look at what the Bible says. The house, when he was building it, now notice this, was built of stone made ready before it was brought you know, to the temple mount so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. You know what that means? That means that Solomon did not want that holy place where the temple would be constructed to be, to be polluted with noise pollution. 
He wanted it to stay reverent, so he ordered that all of the granite that would be cut from Zedekiah's cave, um, you can actually still visit Zedekiah's cave. It's a rock quarry there in Israel where the stones for Solomon temple, Solomon's temple were hewn. And Solomon had ordered that all of the stones to be cut from that quarry were to be cut that they were to be sized, that they were to be, that they were to be exact measurements so that when they came out of the quarry and taken to the temple for the construction project, that they fit perfectly where they go without making any adjustments once they got there. Now, that's pretty amazing, wouldn't you say? That on that temple mount during the construction process, it was silence. No hammers, no chisels no saw. They would just bring these big boulders that they had taken and they'd cut them to size in the quarry and they fit perfectly in place after place after place as Solomon built that incredible place for God to come and to meet with man. In Jewish culture, this temple would be the most important place in existence. It would be the center of their lives. When this temple was completed, you know, they had been worshiping in a temporary structure called the tabernacle for 500 years. But now that Solomon would build the temple, it would be a permanent place where they would go. And the Bible says that there was a section called the holiest place or the holy of holies separated from the outer courtyard by a four-inch thick veil or curtain. And that once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would have the audacity to go back behind that veil. In fact, you know the history of that. They would tie a rope around his leg. He'd have bells on the bottom of his robe in case God rejected his offering. They could pull him out without having to go behind the veil where God's presence was. But anyway, this high priest on Yom Kippur, he would go to that holy place and he would offer an atonement. He would sprinkle blood there as a sacrifice for the sins of the people for another year. So the temple was more than just a building. It was more than an anchor what? It was more than a shrine. It was going to be a place where God would come and meet with his people. Let me show you. Look in verse number 11 that we read as we started. Notice, the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and ex execute my judgment and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with you which I spoke to your father David. You'll remember back in chapter 2, just before David died, he gave these same words to Solomon. Walk in the ways of God. Keep his commandments, keep his statutes, keep his judgment. Look in uh, verse 13. He says, I will dwell among the children of Israel. Now notice how he is very intentional in what he says there. He did not say, I will dwell in this temple that Solomon made. God says, I'm going to dwell with my people. Because not even Solomon's temple would be able to contain me. How can you, how can you contain an omnipotent, all-powerful, an omniscient, all-knowing, an omnipresent God who is everywhere? How can you reduce him down to a temple that is made with the hands of humanity? It cannot be done. So God does not say, I will dwell in there, he says, I'm going to dwell with my people. But this is the place that he would come in his glory to meet with people. Notice, hold your place here. Turn over two pages or so to chapter 8, verse 27. If you're listening, say amen. 
Notice what Solomon says, chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? That's a question he asks. Where in the world is God? Where on earth is God? Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. How much less this house that I have built. So even Solomon recognizes that it won't contain him. Now go back to chapter 6, verse 14. So Solomon built the house. He finished it. Verse 37, that it says that it was in the month of, of Ziv. That's our month of April, May. That when he started the foundations there of four years into his reign. Verse 38 says he completes it in the month of Bull, which is our October, November months for our Gregorian calendar. And after the temple was completed, the Bible says, and we'll look at this when we go through some of the passages in Chronicles one of these days, that when Solomon finished it, he lifted his hands and he dedicated this temple to God and asked for God's presence to come and to meet with mankind. Let me show you just a, very quickly a few of the things that he said. If you're still there in chapter 8, look in verse 56. Let me just read you some of what Solomon says. Um, in verse 56, he said, Blessed be the Lord that has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Now, I love this verse. Look at this. That there has not failed one word of all of his good promise which he promised by the hand of his, Moses, his servant Moses. Not one thing has God said that he would do has he ever come short in doing. Go to verse 58. That he may incline our heart to him to walk in his ways. And here's what he said in chapter 6 and in chapter 2. Keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments that he commanded our fathers. Go to verse 59. And let these my words wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord be nigh to the Lord our God day and night that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times in the manner shall he require. Verse 61, let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as at this day. So here's where we are. Solomon builds the temple. And again, you can read the details of all the expensive materials that go into building that. When he builds it, put on your thinking cap because I'm going to get somewhere with this, but I don't want you to get lost in the weeds, all right? When he builds it, it's about 1,000 B.C., about 1,000 years or so before Jesus is born. 500 years after that, in 586 B.C., a king from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, in one of three campaigns, leaves Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, comes down into Israel, and this temple, this beautiful temple that Solomon had spent seven years building and employed tens of thousands of people and spent upwards of $3 billion in today's money, King Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. Can you imagine that? Steamrolls it. Kidnaps many of the Jewish people, takes them back into Babylon for what we know as the seven years of Babylonian captivity. When the captivity was near in its completion, the first wave of Jews that came back into Israel following that captivity were led by a governor named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel had some men with him like Haggai, if you read the, Old Testament, uh, the um, minor prophets in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and some others who were with him. And they came back into Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it. 
And they started to rebuild this temple. Nehemiah talks about it as Nehemiah was instrumental in helping to rebuild the wall. But they rebuild this temple, but it, when they get it finished, it's somewhat underwhelming compared to the one that Solomon built. Okay, So what happens is years later, King Herod, King Herod decides that he's going to renovate that temple. He expands it, and he makes it an edifice unlike anything the world had seen at that particular time. It was a phenomenal building project when King Herod renovated and expanded the temple. When King Herod did that, that's the exact same temple that Jesus was brought into as a baby when he was eight days old to be dedicated to God. You remember when Mary and Joseph did that, right? It is the same temple that Jesus as an adult, when he goes into it and he sees the money changers buying and selling and they had turned the house of God, this temple, into a, into a kind of a den of thieves. Jesus turns over their money tables, takes a cord, a whip, and he drives them out. Uh, the very same temple. Well, f- about 40 years after Jesus dies, after the Calvary and after, after the resurrection, about 40 years after that, It's the same song, a different verse. This time, it is a Roman general by the name of Titus that marches into Jerusalem, and he does to Herod's temple what Nebuchadnezzar did to Solomon's temple years and years earlier. In fact, Jesus made a prophecy one day when he told the people, he said, look around at this temple, there will be a day when not a single stone would be left on top of another. And sure enough, it is said that when the Romans came into Jerusalem and they burned down that temple, that the gold that was in the temple melted and ran into the crevices of the blocks and that the soldiers literally took crowbars and pried apart the blocks to get to the gold that had melted and then dried back in place there and that not a single stone was left on top of another. So why do I tell you all that history? I tell you that to say there is a reason why. Well, let me say this first. That from that time, A.D. 70, to even today in 2022, there is no Jewish temple. There are places that Jews worship, um, 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 home churches or synagogues, those kind of things, but there's not a Jewish temple. The closest thing that they have is the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall, you see on television. They come to this wall, which is the closest place in proximity to the Holy of Holies where Solomon's temple originally stood. And they pray in front of that wall. And they put their prayer requests on pieces of paper and fold them up, and they stuff them in those cracks of those, of those blocks, those massive blocks that were hewn out of Zedekiah's quarry. And they're praying for their Messiah to come. But there is no Jewish temple. Why is that? Well, maybe a number of reasons. Let me give you a couple. Perhaps you're thinking, well, Pastor Darrell, it is because of the political uncertainties over there in that part of the world and the fact that, uh, and the, fact that uh, the, uh, the Temple Mount is under Islamic control right now, not Jewish control. And, um, and the Muslims would never allow a Jewish temple to be back, built back there. It would start World War III. You may be right, and that's probably one of the reasons why it's not back yet, but there's a bigger and higher reason for that. Primarily the reason is There's no temple in Jerusalem because there's a transition period that has taken place that you and I are in right now. And in this transition period, God does not live in a temple made by the hands of Solomon or Zerubbabel 
or renovated by King Herod or anybody else. If you want to know where on earth is God, right now the Bible says he lives in you and I. When King Solomon asked the question, will God dwell with man on the earth? His answer was given on the day of Pentecost. You remember on the day of Pentecost, penta meaning 50, 50 days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came back when the disciples were assembled all together in the upper room and Jesus had said to them, guys, right now the Holy Spirit is on you, but one day the Holy Spirit will be in you. And then right there on the day of Pentecost in that upper room, the Bible says it was the sound of like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't wind. The curtains weren't flapping. The papers weren't stirred. There was no dust moving. It was quiet except for this rushing, mighty wind, this sound. And the Holy Spirit of God came not to dwell among men, but listen carefully, to live inside men. And today, listen, you and me are that temple where the presence of God lives. Let me show you. Turn in your Bible to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is so good. Look at what he says in verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. He says, Know you not that you are the temple of God? Now, he could have said, you are, you are the house of God or you're the home of God. He could have used a number of different words, but he uses the word temple because in the Jewish mind, it was the most holy place. So he is saying, and, and by the way, we don't want to get too technical right here, but when he says you're the temple of God, it's not just personal, although it is personal, but it's also a reference to the larger you, us who are the body of Christ, that as a church family, as the body of Christ, we are, we are his temple, all right? So let me just uh, look what he says. Know you not that you are the temple of God... And that the Spirit of God dwells, look at this, in you. Not just around you, or not just with you, but what does he say? He lives in you. I know times can be tough sometimes, but I still believe this is the greatest time in the history of humanity to be alive. Because even when Jesus was alive, he would be God with us, but not God in us. But when Jesus rose from the grave and God sent the Holy Spirit to return, the Holy Spirit now lives in my life and your life, and we are God's temple. Now listen carefully. We're not a place where a dead God lives. We're not a shrine like Anchor Wat that just has memories of God or fond affections of God. We are a living vessel where the presence of the living God has deposited His Holy Spirit. And everywhere we go and everything that we do and everything we ever become, we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. That's an awesome thought, is it not, church? If you ever wonder if God loves you, if God cares about you, if He is interested in your life, He cares enough that He has put your spirit. The Bible calls God's spirit a down payment for us that he puts his spirit in us, that he's one day going to come back and bring home. Let me show you another passage. Turn over a couple of more pages to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6, the context of chapter 6 is actually set 
uh, set in a sexual immorality. And what was happening here at the church of Corinth was individuals kind of had this perspective that God doesn't care what I do with my body. It's my body. It's my business. I'll do what I want. Again, sounds like that's where we are today, right? It's my body. Hands off my body. I'll do what I want, and I have no accountability. Uh, It's my body, and I'll do my own thing. That's kind of what the Corinthians were saying. And look what the Apostle Paul writes to them. Chapter 6, look in verse 19. What? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you, look at this, you're not your own, he says. It's not yours. It's God's temple. God lives in your body. He says, you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So let me give you... To bring all of this to a close in about five minutes, let me give you about three PowerPoints of application that I hope that you can live by. First of all, since God lives in our lives, it should motivate us to live a pure life. Since God lives in our lives, it should motivate us to live a pure life. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice did they want in the Old Testament? What kind of sacrifice did God require? A dead sacrifice. What does he ask for in the, in the New Testament? A living sacrifice. Us. Because he's put his spirit in our bodies. And we're to live out this Christian journey in faith and in purity. You see, as a Christian, we take God everywhere we go. And I don't want to take my temple that has the Holy Spirit into places that would sully the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I don't want to participate in activities in my body that would be unbecoming to the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. God is not only interested in our soul, and He is supremely interested in that, but He is also interested in the vessel that contains his spirit that you and I carry the bo- call the body. Listen to, what, uh, listen to what John Piper says. He says, The body in which you dwell is not yours to do with simply as you please. God bought your body from the curse of sin by payment of his own son, and now your body should serve one all-encompassing purpose. Glorify God in your body. I belong to Jesus. He has died for me. I am his, and he is mine throughout all eternity. And I appreciate what he had to say about that. Because when we become become a Christian, old things are passed away and everything has become new. And the Spirit of God now lives and resides in us. And everywhere you go, listen church, everywhere we go, we take God with us. He lives in us. So knowing that he lives in us motivates me to try to live my life in a fashion that is pure. Also, secondly... Since God lives within me, I'm motivated to use my body for His glory. That's what he says here. He says, glorify God in your body and your spirit. Romans 8 and 9. Now listen carefully, and we're going to close in a moment. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's Romans 8 9. Every Christian is the temple of God. And it is just as meaningful 
as that Old Testament temple was to Solomon. But more so in that God would only dwell in his presence there on the day of Yom Kippur. God's with us every day. Every day, and it should motivate us to use our bodies for his glory. Listen to what one author writes. Your eyes are not your own. Your eyes are not your own that you may feel your lusts, that you may go about gaping and gazing and looking into every shop window to see the fashions of the day. Learn the prevailing pride of life and thus lay up food for your vain mind, either in coveting what must be unfitting to your profession or applying to your money to an improper use or being disappointed because you cannot afford to buy it. Your ears are not your own, that you may listen to every, every foolish tale, drink in every political, worldly, or carnal report which may fall upon them, and thus feed the natural desire for news, gossip, and even slander, which is the very element of the carnal mind. Your tongue is not your own, that you may speak what you please and blurt out whatever passes in the chambers of your heart without check or fear. Your hands are not your own, that you may use them as implements of evil or employ them in any other way that to earn them with an honest livelihood. Our hands are not given to us for sin, but for godly uses. Your feet are not your own, that you may walk in the ways of the world or that they should carry you to the haunts where all around you are engaged upon errands of vanity and sin. You're bought with a price, is what the author says. And our role now is to keep our bodies pure and to be motivated to know that we're housing, housing the, t the presence of God and that whatever we do, wherever we go, whatever we traffic in, we're bringing God with us. And then finally, number three, since God lives within me, it motivates me to serve in His kingdom. Since God lives within me, it motivates me to serve in His kingdom. I said, and I'm going to close, two minutes, stay with me. I said that, uh, so the third time I've closed, for those of you who are keeping score, uh, two minutes. Um, I said a while ago that when Paul talks about be, that um, we are the, um, the temple of God, he does use that in a very personal fashion in that it's individual, but it's also corporately, meaning that we're come, when we come to faith in God, we're part of one big body, and that's the family of God. That's the body of Christ. He's the head. We're the members that, that, that serve him and serve in his kingdom. I illustrate it this way. Uh, several years ago, I read a story about some scientists who um, had some interesting things to say about why Canadian geese fly in the V formation. And you've seen these geese, right? As they are flying, they, they're always in this V formation and they're honking as they fly. Scientists discovered that's not a coincidence, but they do that for a reason, that as they fly in formation, the lead bird creates an updraft with his wings as he is flying that actually pulls along the bird that is behind him, who in turn does the same thing. And they're really kind of stacked on top of each other, just one a little higher than the other in this V pattern. And that the birds that are in the rear, they're honking and they're honking and they're honking. And they're encouraging the bird that's in the front because he's getting tired. And then as he gets tired, he drops out of the lead position, comes to the back, and another bird takes the lead. And they're all honking for this one. And as he flaps his wings, 
wings, it drags others along. And when he gets tired, he drops back and another comes to the forefront. And with this V formation, they're all just honking and they're flying and they can cover so much more territory because they've realized that one person can't do it all or one bird, they have to switch positions. And in so doing, they encourage each other as they go through this journey. And to me, I'm just thinking, God has called us, God has saved us, God has put his spirit in us, and now what we're doing as part of his forever family, we're just going around and we're serving him and we're just honking, trying to encourage others to keep on going, right? And we're doing all that we can to participate and to serve and to honor God with the works of our life, our hands, our service to God, because we know he lives in us. And this body is his temple. So if it's to serve in the hospitality committee, I'm ready to do it. If it's to drive one of our golf carts, I'm ready to do it. If it's to sing in the choir, I'm ready to do it. If it's to be an instrumentalist, I'm ready to do it. Or teach in a Sunday school or whatever it is. Because I'm just an extension of God who lives on the inside of me. So answer that final question. Where on the earth does God live? Friends, he lives in the heart and life of every Christian person.